Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Moki. Let's get started. In this episode, I had a fun conversation with Fred Tutman, who is the official Patuxent River keeper. The Patuxent River is a tributary in the Chesapeake Bay in the state of Maryland. I didn't know there were river keepers, not only in the U.S., but globally until I came across Fred through my research. And learning about what he does, I felt like I absolutely needed to share this with you. What made me more curious about Fred is that he worked in media for 27 years and then made a major shift to protect and preserve the Patuxent River as a river keeper. I wanted to know what led to that shift. And also, as the only African-American river keeper in the U.S., I wanted to know what Fred thinks we can do in the environmental movement to make it more inclusive and increase representation of grassroots environmental movements, such as that of the Patuxent River Keeper. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and hit me up if you have any questions or wanted to share your reactions on this. I thought we could first start off by just talking about your background of working in media, television and radio for 27 years. And then later on in your life, you decided to go to law school and now you are the Patuxent River Keeper. How did that shift come about and what is fulfilling to you being a river keeper? So it's funny you should ask because it is true. I've tried to figure this out myself. How did I end up being a river keeper? Because I started out on an entirely different course in life. You know, my sense of it was that I've always been a change agent. And at one time, I guess the evolution of my thinking was that I thought the best way to be an activist was to make films about various issues and to do media productions about some of the issues that I was really concerned about. And, and I saw that as social change stuff. So the first company I formed for a media company was actually called Transcultural Multimedia because I had this fantasy that I was going to go and make films and documentaries that would help bring cultures closer together. Mm. You know, later in life, I learned that water actually has that potential too. You can bring people together as a community organizer with a very different set of tools, a very different toolbox than you would have if you're um, making films or taking pictures or being a journalist. But more importantly, the clients, the people who paid for the stuff that I did in my television career, they weren't interested in social change. They wanted to sell stuff to people. So, so I was really in the wrong game, I think, in looking back on it if I really wanted to make substantial social change of any sort, because the the instrumentality for that is really not making television shows. It's about getting your boots on the ground and going out and doing something in these communities. Mm -hmm. So after a while, I began to feel like we were kind of skunks at the picnic. I would get hired on these big international news stories, and we'd go overseas, and we'd spend all kinds of expense account money. And in the end, I don't know that we helped anybody except ourselves. I began to feel a little guilty about going to developing countries and taking pictures rather than actually trying to pitch in and trying to help and trying to solve these problems. So I needed some bridge between the old career and my desire to be an activist. And I thought law school might at least clear the decks in terms of me being able to do any number of things. Because while I knew I didn't want to practice law, I knew I needed something that was kind of a transition career that would allow people to see me differently. 
not just as a guy with TV cameras and microphones and being a journalist or a scriptwriter or whatever. So that's a, a long explanation, but that's the that's how my thinking kind of changed over time about the role that I could play to become the change I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. You know? It's like Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see in the world. Yes, that's, that's, you, you remember the quote much better than I did, but that's <laughs> exactly the sentiment I was trying to capture. So why the Patuxent River? What drew you to it? The Patuxent is the river that runs near my family's farm. We have a, a, a family tract of land that's been in the family since oh, almost 100 years mm-hmm. in Maryland. And the Patuxent River was the river I swam in, fished in, could walk to when I was a boy. And I had been involved in local activism, trying to protect the Patuxent near me. For some strange reason, it wasn't until I was probably in my 40s that it occurred to me that the river actually started somewhere north of us mm-hmm. <laughs> and went somewhere to the south of us. And we were in the middle. It just never occurred to me where the river came from and where it went. Right. It just was sufficient that it ran past the house. So, <laughs> so in an odd sort of way, it, it widened my scope. I suddenly realized, you know, the problems I'm trying to solve in this neighborhood related to water and the environment. They're actually outside of my zip code sometimes. They're actually outside of my view shed. And so that was exciting. The idea that I could go maybe to the bigger picture problems under which the ones I was working on, the problems I was working on, really, where they really sat, go to the source. So that's really how, again, my thinking began to shift about where I could make a difference. And I knew it had to be bigger than just what I could see from my family's farm. Mm -hmm. It had to be the multiple counties of the states, particularly the state's most, I'd say, activist river. It is the river that gave rise to the Chesapeake Bay movement close to 50 years ago. That's a movement that has been cleaned up only to see those gains lost again, but largely through activism, through citizen activism. So the river has a real heritage itself of clawing its way to some form of uh, sustainability. Yeah. And it seemed like a great challenge, the one I could devote three lifetimes to if I had three lifetimes to spend on it. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, it's sort of the activism that you would have to pass on to the next generation so that the momentum can either sustain or just grow bigger, right? Yeah, I I think that's certainly true. And there's something romantic about it, too. I think I'm a Pisces and, you know, I have all this kind of watery Mm -hmm. sense of connection to water wherever it happens to be. You are a water sign. Yeah, well, there you go. And I also think that water is kind of a good um, way to connect people. If you're standing on an elevator with a bunch of strangers, and, you know, men often make small talk, uh, at least in the United States, about football, which is really not my thing. But if you want to talk about water, I find it's a great discussion starter. People really want to get it off their chest. They want to talk about what's important, significant, about their connection Mm -hmm. to the water that was near where they were or when they were growing up, or the water that they're familiar with. Water is heartfelt. It's something that goes right to the bone, I think, in people in terms of their sense of the world. Yeah. Whenever I tell people that I work on water issues, I think that just resonates with them because most reactions are, water is life. Of course, why, why wouldn't we care about water? Most of the people that I do come across and tell them that I work on water issues, while they are intrigued, they don't necessarily think that they're are jobs or that there's work to be done in water, but they know the value of water because they see it directly connected to their well-being. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when you when you work on as as a river keeper, how do you make that connection between livelihoods, the river and water? Well, that's a great question. So 
first of all, I have this little, um, I guess you would say, phrase or, or thing I say to myself, is today a day we're going to be making a difference or is a day we're going to be making a living? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> because I, I've had a difficult time finding ways to do both at the exact same time. Sometimes we can, mm-hmm. but, but for the most part, we have to draw that distinction. There's work, there's work to be done in these watersheds that nobody's standing in line to take on because nobody's going to pay for it. It's work that's necessary. As far as the infrastructure of the communities that it serves, watermen and lots of other interests along these waterways that are prime interests, and yet it's all kind of haphazard how we try to protect those things. We pass the hat, right? If we wanted to build three Chesapeake Bay bridges across the Chesapeake Bay, I'm sure we could find money on the stock market and people willing to chip in. If we wanted to clean up the Chesapeake Bay, we'd have to pass the hat. (laughs) <laughs> run a lottery, <laughs> mm-hmm. do any number of things that were that are under the table and under the radar screen because it's simply not provided for. So that's what I'm alluding to is that this, the work of connecting people to these waters, of building a movement that stra- spans multiple counties and, and multiple jurisdictions, all to protect a single resource, is not work that people are standing in line to do, but it's necessary work. Just as a reference point in a single watershed, which let me be clear by by perspective, my my river is 110 miles long, so it's not the biggest river in the world by any stretch of the imagination. There are lots and lots of rivers that are bigger. It's big enough that on a clear day, if I'm in an airplane, I can just about see where the water enters the Chesapeake Bay while I'm flying above the headwaters. On a really clear day, you can almost kind of see 110 miles if you really squint. So it's not enormous, but it is a symbol in many respects. And it's also something that has given quite a lot to the formation of Maryland in particular. This river, the Patuxent, people say that this is one of the most significant rivers or most studied rivers in America for all kinds of reasons. Not only because a lot of the water science that is being used around the rest of the country was developed, believe it or not, on the Patuxent River, but also because the War of 1812 unfolded there. Some people think it's the only place that has been invaded by a foreign power on American shores, other than Pearl Harbor and 911. Because the British landed, literally, right where our office is, as a matter of fact, the Patuxent Riverkeeper's office is right where the British landed on the Patuxent before they marched across land to burn the White House during the War of 1812. In other words, our country was being invaded. Our country was actually being invaded by a foreign power on the Patuxent River. So in a sense, it has national significance and national historical significance. Granted, a very unpopular war. Not not many people know much about the War of 1812 at all and why we were in it. But anyway, if I can have bragging rights a little bit, the the Patuxent is not just a local river in Maryland. It is a nationally significant river for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. You just kind of explaining the historical context of the river. I guess my imagination went to that time and just imagining the the British troops sailing up the river and I enjoy history. And so for me, just knowing a little bit more about what would be an, a natural historic site, I guess, it just adds a little bit more context and more appreciation for that particular feature, if that makes any sense. Well, sure. Yeah, and again, water, water is important. Water is important as a navigational aid, as a reference point, as a highway for commerce, as this country was new and young and, and growing. So you know, water has all of these overtones wherever you find it. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of a fan. Everywhere I go, I want to check out the local water and find out how it figures into the local geopolitics. Yeah, and you, if you don't mind telling us again or t- telling me again the background of how the river 
got its name. It was a very, I guess, an eye-opening and somewhat romantic story about the name of the river and what it means to the indigenous community that gave it its name. Sure. So most of the tributaries of the Chesapeake Bay, of which the Patuxent is only one of many, most of those rivers do have Native American names. And those names came about through all sorts of reasons and ways. But the Patuxent actually was an Indian tribe, a Native American tribe, now very assimilated, now very absorbed. Some people say that the Algonquin-speaking Indians, like the Patuxent tribes, the Algonquin, the Algonquin language was a trade language, I gather, favored by lots of different Native American tribes that traded amongst themselves. But some people say that the word Patuxent meant in Algonquin, water running over smooth stones. But it could also be used as a compliment. It could be used to uh, compliment a beautiful woman, for example. You know, like, like hey, I think you're Patuxent. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that would be a compliment, I, I think. I'm just yeah, going to be using that. <laughs> yeah, hey, Patuxent, how are you, Patuxent? <laughs> it just sounds so much better. <laughs> yeah, it does. There's a lot of syllables. But, uh, well, you know, the analogy people have shared with me is like aloha, which apparently can be used by inflection or, you know, either if you're coming or going, yeah. it can be used as a, in, in many different situations. Yeah, that's really cool. So thank you for sharing that. I, I didn't know until you told me, of course, but you told us a little bit about what you are trying to do in terms of building a, a movement towards protecting and preserving the river to the extent possible. Could you tell us a little bit about what does a day in the life of a river keeper look like? Well, actually, to me, one of the most intriguing things about this work is it's never the same two days in a row. I do a lot of public speaking and media appearance work, which is good in the general sense to raise the profile of the river. But a lot of my work is actually very hands-on in the watershed. Last week, I was meeting with county and state officials over um, some permitting issues that have uh, come up on one of the restoration projects that we're involved with in one of the towns along the river. So we work with uh, municipalities and with local communities literally to solve local water problems. Sometimes we're able to find grant support to uh, do a restoration of a stream or to fix some local infrastructure. Some days I'm in court. Some days I'm uh, visiting with citizens in various places of the river looking at issues and problems and concerns that have been raised by local communities. You know, it's pretty endless in terms of the variety of stuff. Sometimes in the warm weather months, I'm actually on the river, mm -hmm. actually in boats out on the river um, looking again at pollution issues or doing water quality monitoring. We stage a lot of events to bring the communities that we serve together at our office. We have some pretty good alliances with the Native American communities near our office, and they often have ceremonies and observances uh, at the office. We have a um, kind of an anti-Columbus Day event every year. We call it um, Let's see, I forgot what we call it. It's not called Anti-Columbus Day. I think it's called, it's called Indigenous Peoples Day. Indigenous yes. Peoples Day. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that's interesting because I feel like we're also changing culture. Yeah. You know, some people come by and they raise their eyebrows like, hmm, what the, what's wrong with Columbus? Right? You know, through the Native American lens, people like Columbus and John Smith. Yeah. Who, quote, unquote, discovered the Chesapeake Bay, as though the Native Americans here already hadn't really discovered it. Incidentally, John Smith didn't care about the Patuxent. He, he apparently went to the mouth of the Patuxent, went a few miles up, and then got bored and turned around and left and thought there was nothing worth pursuing. Mm. So, so he did very little on the Patuxent River, unlike the British much later. So my days are different. They're, they're all over the map. And I must say, Sapna, this is the most challenging work I've ever done. 
There are days when I'm completely done in, like I'm completely tapped out in terms of my stamina and my ability to keep up with it. You're meeting people's expectations. A riverkeeper is not just a person and a job. It's a symbol, too. You know, you're, you're really a symbol. You epitomize people's hopes and aspirations for the salvation of a river that, frankly, has gotten only worse year after year for the last 40 years. I mean, we've made gains here and there, yeah. but I don't see any big picture plan, certainly not by the government, that sounds plausible for actually protecting, cleaning up, and restoring this river to health. The fisheries are not as healthy as they once were. People can get sick sometimes if uh, they swim in this water. You know, there are lots of things that are, frankly, quite horrifying about the state of water. Sometimes I find the government tends to lull people into a sense of just false security. Yeah. Like someone's taking care of this stuff. You know what? It's you and me. We're taking care of this stuff. I mean, just ask the citizens of Flint. There are lots of Flint, Michigans, you know, a place where the water was out of control for so long. And it turns out, upon investigation, right, that the government was complicit. They were looking the other way. Right. It was citizens. Right. It was citizens who, who armed uh, and I say armed themselves. I mean, they armed themselves with knowledge, with lawyers, with facts, with science. You know, I don't mean arm in a violent sense. I mean, arm themselves with civic tools to do what was necessary. Right. To basically preserve their own sense of being. Well, yes. And, and I think it's important that you point that up because it has the environment and water has a very different significance to different folks. See, in the Chesapeake Bay region, I do think that moneyed communities think of the Chesapeake Bay and local water as something related to crabs and oysters, Mm -hmm. which is a very soft message compared to a public health concern, right? See, I think better messaging would be this is a public health concern where life itself depends on the outcome, as opposed to, oh, let's save all the seafood. (laughs) Or, for that matter, the positioning of these movements as behavior change movements. That's a common saying in the Chesapeake Bay area, that in order to protect these resources, we have to change people's behavior. See, I think we have to do social change movements. We have to change society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then people's behavior will change. Right. So I do think that we've put the shoe on the wrong foot in terms of these very soft, feel-good movements that don't really tackle real problems, you know, in part because they treat problems as though they are, quote, issues. And issues are very generic. What's your issue? Well, it's climate change. How about your issue? Well, it's stormwater. Well, you know, issues aren't problems. (laughs) They're just generic statements of themes. Mm -hmm. I think much more potent activism comes from working on actual local problems. Right. So there's a disconnect, I think, between on-the-ground activism, particularly in black and brown communities, where that activism goes unrecognized sometimes, I think, by white environmentalists who assume that all environmentalism looks like them. Right. You know, or behaves the way they behave or considers the same issues they consider important to be important as well. Right. So part of this work is actually being your own man or woman. I think that's important, too. How do you be an environmentalist and be your own man? In my case, that's the concern that I have. Right. Right. Call it like I see it. Speak truth to power. So that's part of the challenge of this river keeping is to speak on your own behalf and to preserve your own righteous voice. Right. When I learned about you and your work in the Patuxent River and Patuxent River Keepers, I didn't even know that was a thing. And then I was, you know, reading a little bit more about where the the river was geographically and learning that it was in the Chesapeake Bay. I just assumed that, you know, when I was being in the environmental space 
and learning about, you know, the Chesapeake Bay restoration that has been considered one of the most expensive and also successful environmental restoration projects in U.S. history in a sense. So when I learned reading about your work on the Patuxent, I it just opened up a whole other realization that there's a lot more work to be done and that the messaging that comes across of the Chesapeake Bay being like kind of saved and restored, it's not that simple. Like you were saying, it's just like a bunch of issues, but there's a bigger challenge here. And that is like beyond even the Chesapeake Bay. And the message has always been that of an economic one in terms of like, you know, let's save the economies of the the fisheries that depend on the Chesapeake Bay is one of the messages that I kind of came across when I was learning about the restoration project. But I don't want to go like down a rabbit hole here, but I just wanted to share my reaction on what you were saying in in terms of I, I agree with that. You also started to talk a little bit about how black and brown communities are really a big part of the environmental movement. And as I was learning more about you, I read that you are part of a global network of about 343 people who advocate for individual rivers. So this is like an official title that you have. And I also learned that you're the you're the nation's only African-American river keeper, which kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier about the black and brown communities aren't necessarily seen by mainstream environmentalism or environmentalists. So why do you think that you're the only African-American river keeper? Like, how did it come to this? And what can we do to get more people of color involved in, in such jobs? A very quick anecdote. So when I left the media world, like I said, law school was the transition. And gradually, I began to close the company that I had run for the 20-some years. And eventually, we closed that company. And since we owned the office building that we were in, we made it the Patuxent Riverkeeper office. And so the FedEx guy who used to deliver to the office was the same guy who used to deliver when we were a media company. Mm. One day the guy came in and said, you know, I never, I've been delivering packages here for ages. What is it you guys actually do? And I told him, you know, we work on river issues and cars concerns. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, Dag, he said, I didn't think white folks let us do that. Mm. And I thought, wow. <laughs> let us do that what do you mean <laughs> yeah what are you talking about and i think what he meant not that he was a source of wisdom or anything right. but i do believe that when people think of an environmentalist they don't think of people of color mm-hmm. and that's sad because we obviously are very much involved and that there is no monopoly where you have to have a certain skin color right. to work on environmental issues or causes whatsoever but i do think that race expectations are very particular I do think that this is not work that people would naturally assume that African-Americans will do. I do think there's a diversity conversation going on within lots of different sectors of our society, not just in the environmental movement. I think the environmental movement is very defensive about it right now because it is true these are largely white movements because I think they're tailored to serve white communities. The default position seems to be moneyed, affluent, uh, white suburban or upper middle class communities are the kind of general constituency that these movements play to in order to get the donations and the volunteers and the base of support that they need. They are, in effect, movements looking for people to lead. Mm. I don't think that black communities figure into that at all. I think black and brown communities are afterthoughts 
And that's frustrating for me because I, I refuse to be connected to movements where people of color are optional. That's just not acceptable. Mm-hmm. So an odd, another anecdote that's kind of weird. So last week I had a conversation with an elected official who works near, near where I live. And I told him I didn't want to partner with some other environmental group that he and I were talking about because in those movements, that particular movement, people of color not only are optional, but that that movement has a really bad working relationship generally with black and brown communities. And what the politician said to me was kind of stunning, a little insulting. He said, he said, that's really ironic, Fred. He said, because you're the black guy that white folks send when they want to convince the black community that they have support mm. for their issues. Haven't you always known that? Oh, man. <laughs> I thought, wow, where's he going with this? Talk about a rabbit hole. Like, exactly what I've tried to avoid. I try to avoid being used by white movements who want to authenticate their command of these issues in black and brown communities, essentially to speak for black and brown communities by virtue of having tokenism. Right. And I get those calls all the time, right? I got people who call and, you know, can you go and uh, present our issue to XYZ black alderman? Like, well, I don't know that person, but you're both black. It's like, yeah, but... (laughs) I mean, don't you guys speak the same language? (laughs) Well, I do think that I was just joking. It was a rhetoric, uh, rhetorical yeah, whole, comment. I was, yeah, I was being sarcastic. <laughs> well, it's tightly wound, though. I mean, race behavior in America is so peculiar, mm-hmm. right? And it's so expensive. You know how much money we spend in this country just dealing with race, racism, classism, sexism, discrimination. Generally, it's a big, big waste of everybody's time, and yet. You know, this is what we do here is we, we, we nitpick about people's expectations. We, you know, I think we sometimes uh, defeat people's aspirations in these movements by suggesting that people of color are nothing more than diversity, mm-hmm. which is shocking, right? Diversity is not even equality. Diversity is a special thing that's almost like a stigma. Oh, look, he's diverse. As opposed to these really healthy organic movements where diversity is not an issue because they're naturally inclusive, like, frankly, like most grassroots movements. <laughs> That's the irony. Most grassroots movements I know are pretty darn diverse. It's paid professional environmentalism. Right. That's where the diversity problem seems yeah. to really exist. And that's where the body counting, the head counting, well, you know, X percentage of our workforce. That's really not a recipe for inclusion. It's really a recipe for head counting, right? which is anything but inclusion. Oh. So I do suspect these movements are aging out. In fact, I know for a fact they are. <laughs> and so we have an option here. I think people of color can wait around <laughs> a couple of generations, and we're going to inherit these organizations anyway, because the demographics of the country are changing. Right. Whites, we got a tiptoe. We have a tiptoe around the expectations of whites who expect these clubs to remain the same because they want to handpick the diversity. And that's just not going to fly. We'll go where we're appreciated. We'll go where we matter. We'll go where we can make a difference, not where we're just sitting by the door being diverse. Right. And have you had opportunities to have such conversations with the leaders of the organized environmental movements about how diversity is not just a head count, but it's, it's about representation and inclusion in that representation? And if so, what have the reactions been? It's hard for folks to hear what I have to say if they've been invested in this other view of diversity. See, it's funny, I hear very different stories from the black community about the progress of diversity in the Chesapeake Bay movement 
where people figure it's more of the same. It's like, wow, it's like we don't, we can't seem to get our thoughts and our ideas taken seriously by these movements that have been up and running for a long time and are flush with their own success. I feel as though we're, we're actually setting people up to simply just be there, just be in these organizations that have no power, no career ladder. I mean, look at the dilemma of a person who's got a job like an urban outreach coordinator. That's a typical blackophile oriented job title, urban outreach coordinator, because there's this presumption that if you want to reach black communities, you have to have a black messenger. Right. Right. But we don't talk about who, the, who, who controls the message. So I've been reluctant to be party to these types of transactions where, you know, I'm just sitting on a board occupying the diversity chair. I have a friend, actually, who's a Latina. She says she won't accept a board appointment unless there's at least one other person of color already on the board. And she says people ask her, how do I get that first one? He said, that's the question you have to answer before you can freely make a claim to be diverse. Right. If you don't have a genuine strategy or a picture in your head of what this organization looks like, when it's fully serving all players, then you probably aren't ready just to have one or two people of color on your board of directors. That won't get you there. Mm-hmm. So I do find people are talking different conversations, right? People of color saying we're not making much progress at all, yet people who are white consistently assure me that we're making tons of progress in the diversity department. <laughs> so who are you going to believe? <laughs> well, I will believe this one recent report. It's called Green 2.0, and it says that, you know, the population of Black, Indigenous, and people of color is about 38% in the U.S., and yet within formal environmental organizations, we only make 16% of the workforce, and often those are lower positions where you don't see very many people who are in positions of leaderships within those institutions. So I like data because I think it helps tell a part of the story, but there's also people who share these stories based on their experiences, such as you, who can sort of like cross-reference that type of data. So yeah, I hear what you're saying, basically. <laughs> you said that there are a lot of, that the grassroots movement is diverse, and it's just that we're invisible. Do you have any thoughts on how we can get sort of the grassroots movement heard, seen, and appreciated in terms of the contributions that the movement makes towards environmental sustainability? So I don't know that we can uplift the grassroots pulse very easily in circles where people have the expectation that environmentalism should pay you. See, the idea of a paid activist strikes me as rather arcane. Like, can you imagine like, was Martin Luther King on payroll somewhere? I don't know if he was, but, but you know what I'm saying? Or Mahatma Gandhi? I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, if you want to change the world, I assure you, there's nobody standing in line with a big fat paycheck uh, waiting to compensate you. So the truth is the self-interest that people have in these coalitions that work on the same issues, but blend a volunteer activists, grassroots folks with professionals, sometimes these are flawed partnerships because the stakeholder interest for people who are getting paid, who are doing their job, is very different from people struggling for to save all that they have or struggling for some moral principle that underlies everything as far as they're concerned. Right. So the tendency for people who are doing their job is to do the stuff that pays them. And in the case in point, you know, I was in a room full of 20-some environmentalists the other day, and I said, you know, I was the only person of color. And I said, well, you know, suppose there were 20-some people of color here instead of 20-some white folks and one black guy. 
how do you think the conversation about the environment and what issues we're working on might be a little different? And somebody jumped up and said, you know, maybe we can get the funders to pay for this. And I thought, wow, like, so really, the folks sometimes can't make a move unless their funder blesses it. And the idea of funders deciding whether these movements will be inclusive or not is a little scary to me, too. You know, like, wow, maybe the values of these movements are really twisted, that they don't really see the utility of having diversity unless they get something for it. Right? Yeah. I asked the chairman of a board that I sit on, what does diversity look like in this organization when we're done? And he said, I don't know, Fred, but the funders seem to like that sort of thing. Uh, it didn't get me the warm and fuzzy that this is a board I need to be spending a lot of time on. Right. Because again, there's no vision. There's no vision other than just show up. Because all you have to do is sit there. We'll do all the talking. We'll do all the deciding. We'll do all the funding. We'll do everything. White people are going to save the planet all by ourselves. And you know, people of color will get an honorable assist. Somewhere in the second, you know, that small credit at the end of the movie, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Incidentally, I've always noticed that the larger your name is in the credit, sometimes that means that's the person who did the very least work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the smallest names are the people who came to the shoot every day. Yeah. The big names are the ones who were so far above the line, they, you know, they could sleep in. Yeah. Usually, usually the way that works. I'm not down for a movement where our potential is limited mm-hmm. by virtue of the expectations of us which tend to be fairly low. Yeah, That's the part that's troublesome to me. Why are those expectations low? We have succeeded and prevailed over every hurdle and obstacle and struggle that has confronted us in hundreds of years. <laughs> we are, as much as any ethnic group, smart, leaders, capable, ingenious, yet we are consigned to be diversity. Mm-hmm. What a letdown. Duh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, speaking to your to what you said earlier about how this agenda of diversity is really being led by funders and, you know, having worked in nonprofit in the U.S. and also abroad, I just really did see how our work was really impacted by the money that we were being given. And the metrics of our work were also determined by what funders thought was change in their mind. And that to me is just, it's very scary because it completely kind of dehumanizes the the efforts that sincere like environmentalists are putting towards sustainability and it just it just makes it so much harder to actually get anything done because it's all determined well, by the money in a sense or funders agenda i totally agree yeah it's a value system surrounding money it's very sticky i would say and it's something i think that we all as environmentalists, as activists, we all have to confront. I mean, whenever I have these talks with folks about kind of where I'm coming from and the money thing, sometimes people walk away with the idea that Fred is against money, which is stupid. <laughs> it's not against money. But I do I am against the role that money sometimes plays in conservation causes. I do believe that a more potent, strong, grassroots movement is likely to be found largely through unfunded quarters. We couldn't afford to pay for the kind of dedication you're likely to get yeah. from a community that's fighting like heck to save whatever they can. And so I think in these larger movements where they become career proxies for people like, let's say, uh, lawyers. You know, I know plenty of public interest lawyers working for conservation organizations where they could obviously be making far more money elsewhere. And I think the argument they use is that money's not so important. It's doing the really good work that's much more important. 
But there's also folks who use money as kind of a, a way of measuring attainment, right? Organizations that if you have more money than anyone else in your coffers, that means you're a more important organization. Even people who believe that if this was a really important issue, surely someone would be paying for it. In other words, money becomes the measurement for how good or important an issue it is at all. Mm -hmm. So I do think these are values conversations that people really need to have, and we need to be discerning. We need to be discerning about where money is really necessary and where, frankly, we're better off not paying for certain things because we're going to have a much stronger, more durable movement. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we're not going to fix everything broken with this planet in my lifetime. So to me, the most durable movements, the movements that will outlive me, are the ones that largely have the staying power because they're in the DNA of the neighborhoods and the communities we serve. Right. They're not based on a single grant or on a funded situation where when the money disappears, so does the initiative. Right. How awful is that? So I do believe these have to be discerning movements where we have to make strategic choices about whom we will accept money from, whom we will not, whom we'd rather not be funded by, and whether these activist causes are really corporate assets because, let's face it, foundations are the corporate front, right, mm -hmm. of, of <laughs> who are seeking tax advantages. In other words, just because it's a foundation doesn't mean that it's not some corporate interest that's funding the work that you're doing. And I do believe the work has to belong to the community. Yeah. There's a great episode from Patriot Act. I don't know if you watch that. It's by Hassan Minaj, who's a comedian, but also just like a truth teller. And he, there's an entire episode about how foundations actually are created as a way to reduce the tax responsibility on wealthy families. It's a great story. So I, I can send you the link if that would be of interest to you. I would love it if you send me the yeah. link. I and we'll, we'll include it in our show notes as well. But yeah. Anyways, we're kind of coming to the, the end of our conversation, unfortunately. And I wanted to ask you, there's sort of this this challenge of working in the environmental spaces. Like there's the, the financial burden on the person who's dedicating their life to a specific environmental issue is, you know, it's real because you want to be able to have like enough money to kind of like feed yourself, but you also want to be part of an, an environmental cause that you care about. So what advice would you give to somebody who's looking to kind of build their life for a profession, I guess, in an environmental cause? So I think you have to take to heart that question of whether you're making a difference or making a living at any given time. You have to be pretty clear in your own mind which aim <laughs> you're fulfilling because they're both necessary, I think. Mm -hmm. I do think that the business plan, and I have friends who actually get mad at me for using that term. It's not a business, it's a nonprofit. But I, when I, by business, I mean the way in which an organization pays its bills and meets its financial obligations. Right. That, that's what I mean by a business plan. And the business plans for sustainable nonprofits are a little complicated because for the most part, nonprofits depend on begging. We have kind of done a hybrid at Patuxent Riverkeeper. You know, we run a waterfront visitor center in a, in a donated building. We raise earned income, which doesn't come with any strings. We don't really pursue grant foundation opportunities that often. The kind of bookkeeping requirements that they're required to write these proposals. And unless we have reason to believe that they really are seriously considering funding the work, we, we don't send a message in a bottle. It's just too expensive for a small operation like ours to just write on spec endless proposals. Mm -hmm. But moreover, there are certainly groups we'd rather not be funded by, that they don't meet our values. And I think that's a unique idea to some people, like the values matter. Most people figure the money's green. What difference does it make? Would you take a check from Satan? 
And I think it does matter where the money comes from. Corporate-financed environmentalism almost never looks the same as the kind that's funded through the goodwill of the community, frankly, or resourced, if not funded, but resourced from the goodwill of the community. The things that big environmental groups with big, huge staffs can do really well, and there's some things they do really badly. One thing they do really badly is work with local communities. Just don't work very well with them. They just typically don't have the shared synergy needed to make both good career decisions and good environmental decisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are common sense things. We don't talk about it much because I think we're a young movement. Environmentalism as a career, how long ago was Earth Day? What, 40 years ago? Yep. It's a new concept. We're still learning. But I do think that you're right. The risky economic side of being a free agent, which is I think what we've become at Patuxent Riverkeeper, it's a little scary. Frankly, if I hadn't done the school of hard knocks, starting a media company 40 years ago during the Reagan years, <laughs> Reaganomics, I probably wouldn't have been able to handle this, you know, all these many years later, because it was certainly frightening at times to, you know, watch my, my credit, personal credit rating change and yeah. have people I'm responsible for their paychecks. And I'm trying to figure out how to make payroll by the end of the week and you know, all that other stuff that goes along with just trying to keep the doors open and the phones on. You know, people don't understand poverty, I think, in society, quite aside from environmentalism. I think the idea that if you don't have money, you must have not worked hard or didn't do something right, rather than you're a natural casualty of an economic Mm -hmm. that is both destroying people, communities, and the environment. I think we have to be able to articulate that we're fighting to change the economic system however we can, or at least the economic incentives, as much as we're trying to save the environment because they're related problems. That's hugely, hugely important. And yet there are entire movements that can't call out capitalism, right? Which means they're not likely to be able to do much about it, right? If you can't mention it because you'll scare off your funding, <laughs> right? Yeah. How are you ever going to get down to the bottom line of this problem? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, I, I, I definitely kind of understand the different factors that promote to the whole environmental movement. Like you mentioned, you know, just keeping the doors open or the lights on and but also being ethical in where you get your money and kind of the the role that you play in the community so hopefully we'll we'll come up with the ideal model in the near future i hope on how environmental movements kind of conduct themselves so let's get into the lightning round here uh, it's a series of uh, four questions and mm-hmm. just answer the first thing that comes to your mind so the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Wow, tons of stuff. I mean, granted, I do tend to read, read a lot of very technical and legal stuff, and I'm kind of a nerd, so granted, most of my reading tastes wouldn't appeal to your <laughs> listeners. I've just discovered uh, streaming, frankly, streaming videos. So yeah. <laughs> there is a one-season um, uh, series that I saw, so sad because I would have loved to see in a second season, called Damnation. It's about the labor mm. movement, labor movement in Wyoming in the 1920s and 30s. And I don't think much attention is paid anymore to labor movements generally. But I would certainly encourage people, check out Damnation. Not only is the writing really sharp, the problems mm-hmm. they're trying to solve in the, 19, in the Depression, they're really not unlike the problems we're trying to solve today in this country, some of those problems. Yeah. So that fascinated me. Yeah. There's a recent documentary that got great reviews on Netflix, and it's about, gosh, it's called, it's a glass factory that was reopened. Mm-hmm in um some some state in the midwest i can't remember but it was a the company was a chinese company called fu yao and it was just all about labor rights and combining chinese 
work culture with American work culture oh. in America. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll send you the link for that as well. Lovely, thank you. That does sound <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very good documentary. All right, the next question here is, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I am a compulsive list maker. Good gosh. Not only do I make lists, I use a certain type of reporter's notebook, and I've been doing this for close to 40 mm. years, and I date them. So I can actually go uh. back to like a date in 1987 and look up exactly oh, wow. what I was making lists about <laughs> back then. So that's been helpful. For one, things don't slip off of my plate very easily yeah. because I keep transferring the undone items to the subsequent list. But also, I keep very little in my head. You might say I'm an airhead. Pretty much everything I need to know is written down somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So I can stay yeah. pretty loose most of the time. And it confuses people because they'll ask me, like, well, what are we going to do in that meeting tomorrow? It's like, I don't know. i got to look at my list. <laughs> yeah. No, it makes sense. Like, There's only so much you can hold in writing stuff down. Just make sure that it's, it's somewhere documented. Mm-hmm. So what's the best piece of advice you've received? You know, nothing is wasted. I, I will say that even when we lose a lawsuit or we um, have some kind of a setback at the office, it always seems like something positive comes out of it nonetheless. Like that old, every cloud has a silver lining. I mean, I can mm-hmm. imagine some clouds maybe don't, but for the most part, it does seem like things happen the way they're supposed to happen. And you just, sometimes I think we're just along for the ride. <laughs> and of course, I sometimes yeah. feel like that guy riding the guided missile in Dr. Strangelove. You know, I'm along for the ride, but I'm riding the missile into the ground. Yeah. <laughs> but in truth, I, I do think that one simply has to let things play themselves out. Do your very, very best and assume yeah. that things will work out somehow. All right. And so the final question here is, I wanted to ask you who your personal hero is, but I think I'm more interested in knowing what your superpower is. <laughs> My superpower. There's a term I think of a lot called negative space. It, it actually comes from my old career in lighting. And negative space is being able to see something that ought to be there that isn't there. In other words, you see the things that are positive space. You know, as an artist, you would see something that's positive space. Negative space is something that's in the shadows or something where you have to infuse what's missing. I know it sounds like an esoteric idea, but to me, the talent of being able to intuit negative space, to be able to look at the course of things around you and decide not only what's there, but what should be there. What's actually missing from this picture? What's the thing that doesn't fit or doesn't pop up? So that's my odd kind of um, poker playing uh, (laughs) sense, super sense. That is a true superpower, really. I wish I had that. (laughs) I really wish I do, or did, rather. All right, so how can we follow you on your journey? So we do have a website, which we update when we get around to it, um, Mm -hmm. PaxRiverKeeper.org. We're pretty easy to find, Patuxent Riverkeeper on the web. We also maintain our Facebook page with a little more frequency, particularly in the summer months. You know, the winter months, things are pretty quiet around the office and on the river. In the summer, you know, we have scouts coming and going and trips heading out off the dock. You know, we're, we're located in a very beautiful place uh, in rural Patuxent. And so, um, like I said, the warm weather is when you'll see a lot more activity coming out of us. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add before we conclude our conversation here? Well, I did want to quickly answer the personal hero question only because I have always admired Johnny Appleseed, whose real name mm. is John Chapman. And John Chapman was a very pragmatic and far-sighted person. He planted trees all over America. 
Yep. Uh, and I think that's an amazing story. And in that vein, Wangari Mathai, who's passed away, but the African yes. tree planter. To me, she is the African Johnny Appleseed, or vice versa. Johnny Appleseed was the African of the American Wangari Mathai. Bandana mm-hmm. Shiva. I try to uphold people of color who are extraordinary environmentalists doing extraordinary policy and conceptual thinking. So Vandana Shiva would certainly be in that category. And last but not least, Frederick Douglass, an orator and a diplomat and a mm-hmm. very intense guy. If I could have lunch with someone, it would be uh, Frederick Douglass. Wow, lunch with Frederick Douglass, Wangari Mathai, Vandana Shiva, and Johnny Appleseed? Wouldn't that be something? That would be something. I'd want to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, Wangari Madai is sort of like my personal hero. I grew up watching her, you know, protest on the streets of Nairobi. I grew up in Kenya. So like, you know, and as an environmentalist, she was like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And then Vandana Shiva also just like a force to reckon with. I met her at a conference in Geneva several years back, and I was so nervous to go introduce Uh myself. And I was just like... I just want to say I really admire your work and I just ran away. <laughs> and that time I was in undergrad, but I was I was just like so in awe of like the amazing things that she's done that I just got so nervous and just wanted to tell her that she's awesome and run away in the other yeah. direction. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I met her too in Seattle and she's so unassuming. You know? Yes, I didn't know because she was just sitting at the back of the room. And I was like, is that Vandana Shiva? What? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That was me nerding out saying my personal heroes mm-hmm. but anyways well thank you so much again for your time i i really appreciate it this has been such a great conversation and i hope that we can continue it in the near future very good well thanks very much thank you take care hey all thanks for listening to breaking green ceilings if you'd like to hear more episodes with change making environmentalists head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.